0: There are an awful lot of things that we take for granted. I distinctly recall when we did our stewardship class a few years back, when I told the group that home mortgages didn't exist before 1930, there was this look of like horror on their face. And 65 years later, 1995, Microsoft announced Internet Explorer, that if you had a dial-up modem at 14 baud, you could attach yourself to the internet. Something that I can do right now on my watch. There's an awful lot of things that we take for granted. Here's another. Literacy it is estimated that between 95 and 99% of Americans can read and write. No, I'm not so sure that that's an accurate assessment, but clearly we live in a time that presumes that you can read and write and that pretty much everyone else can as well. Did you know that as recently as World War II, that same estimate in this country was only 50%? And worldwide, literacy was estimated at approximately 20% World War II. Many, many things we take for granted today are very recent historical phenomenon. They're things that have we, we just presume are just norm, but for the better part of human history, not really. There are things that have occurred as recently as the last 10 years, if you're talking about an iPhone, things that we take for granted. But in the first century, the literacy rate was estimated to be less than 1%. Probably less. Which leads me to the genius of Mark's Gospel and frankly, the entire New Testament. This morning, as uh, as, as John has pointed out, we're returning to Mark in his gospel in chapter 8. And we're going to examine the second feeding of thousands. And it turns out that that feeding was quite intentional, and the underlying reasons for it are really brilliant. So let's pray and get into it. Father, I am grateful... And I don't take for granted the privilege that John allows me to come up here and speak from time to time. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me as your vessel and that you would be glorified and honored by the examination of Mark chapter 8. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning highlights how Jesus methodically laid the groundwork for God's grace to be extended beyond the Jewish people to all people. And in the course of doing so, he provided us with examples of how blind allegiance to educated authorities could result in you finding yourself at odds with God himself. We begin with the disciples' commitment to Jesus not being very different than it was back in chapter 6 during the first feeding. They were following Jesus, there's no question about that, but they still weren't sure what to make of him. Today... This is a group of people we refer to as seekers, right? They find something compelling about Jesus and the people who are attracted to him, but they don't get it. They're curious, but they're not surrendered. By now, many of you are familiar with this graphic that they're going to put up. They were close to Jesus, but like many who come to church week after week, And just like the Pharisees in our text, they understood Jesus was unique, but they struggled when Jesus wasn't who they wanted him to be. Look with me. In the days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered to him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Or, if you see on the board here, as the message puts it, what do you expect us to do about it? Buy food out here in the desert? Now, is Jesus put off by their sarcasm? Not a bit. I have a feeling at this point... Jesus was pretty much expecting it. Which will be decidedly different, I might point out, when we get to the Pharisees in a bit. But continuing in verse 5, And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat and his disciples, and w- with his disciples, and went to the district of Dalmanutha. On initial reading, some might ask, why another feeding narrative? In part, that's because the last time this was read was well over a month ago. For most of the last 2,000 years, that wouldn't have been the norm, and let me explain. How many of you who aren't teachers, by the way, are familiar with the term oral learner? Now, if you're like me, oral sounds like oral. O-R-A-L-A-U-R-L. Does anybody know the difference? Other than Joan? (laughs) Oral, from your mouth. A-U-R-L, your ear. Oral learners prefer to hear and recite information. They are easily distracted when they read. They prefer written, I mean, pardon me, they prefer spoken directions to written ones. They like listening. They are bothered when other people talk when they're trying to listen? Hmm. Sounds just about like every church I've ever attended in my life. And the writers understood that what they wrote would primarily be communicated orally. Now the reasoning behind the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter six and the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter eight was quite intentional. Mark was using a technique that is known as blocking. Oral teachers in the first century were just like speechwriters and screenwriters of today. Blocking is and has been a commonly employed technique to draw attention to something important. To an oral culture, a point is highlighted and then emphasized by repetition. Let's presume here that we reflect the current literacy rate and 99% of you really comfortable with reading and writing. You would suspect then that you would prefer to read by yourself, research by yourself, take notes and come to conclusions by the, on whatever subject you were studying. You would presume that you would want to do that all by yourself reading. But that simply isn't the case. The truth about faith learning is this. It is pretty much exactly the same today as it was in the first century. Most of you prefer oral learning to non-auditory learning, reading and ser- researching and studying on your own, which explains, ex- explains why today we really don't want anybody disrupting and talking when someone is teaching or preaching. We just really want quiet so we can pay attention. Paul expected his letters to be read out loud. Let's just look at that for a second. In Colossians 4.16, after this letter has been read to you, make sure it gets read also in Laodicea. And get the letter that went to Laodicea and have it read to you. Or a little bit more pointedly, in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read all the brethren. Much of Paul's writings had been written before Mark wrote his gospel. If you're not familiar with it, your gospel in the canon, in the manner in which it is organized, the gospels are all in the front of the New Testament, but that's not the order in which they were written. The two feedings are part of an oral construct that's known as an ABA block. The first feeding in chapter 6 is your first A, the second feeding is your second A, and all the bits between chapter 6 and chapter 8 are referred to as the B portion of the block. The repeated emphasis in this block revolves around the topics of eating, bread, purity codes, Gentiles, and miracles related to hearing and seeing. And just as Paul did in much of his letters, especially Romans, Mark begins with the all-sufficiency of Jesus to the Jew first and goes on to make clear that Jesus wasn't just the Savior of Jewish people. He was the Savior of all people. Again, written to be read, the case can be made that Mark blocked the text between chapter 6, verse 30, and chapter 8, verse 21, to systematically illustrate how Jesus had come initially as the Messiah for the Jew, and then in doing what he did for them was became Messiah for the entire world. So let's look at the scriptural evidence for this oral block. I should note that over the ages, it has been suggested there was really only one feeding, and that Mark had repeated that feeding, and this is obviously the skeptic's take on this, but they were, they would infer that Mark was using a technique, of a blocking technique that is similar to the one that Martin Luther King used in I Have a Dream speech where he repeated, I have a dream, I have a dream. But I struggle with that, and I think you should as well, and here's why. If he were repeating the same feeding event, he would have repeated it identically. Think Martin Luther again. Martin Luther didn't change it up. It was always, I have a dream. Specifically exactly the same. But in your text, as I'm going to point out, it's not exactly the same. Why would Mark have bothered with pointing out that there were different number of people fed? Why would he pointed out that there were different number of baskets collected at the end. And I submit to you that Jesus ensured that the number of baskets left over in each feeding was intentional, and Mark understood why. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that the number 12 has significance for the Jewish people. We we're all pretty familiar with the fact that there were 12 tribes. But did you know that 12 is the age at which young Jewish boys are bat mitzvahed, or that that's the age that Jewish girls are expected to start keeping the Jewish law? 12 is an important number to the Jewish people. So when Mark used 12 baskets, which, by the way, Jesus made sure there was 12. This isn't Mark just ad-libbing. This was Jesus ensured the fact that there were 12 baskets of leftovers in the first feeding. He was pointing clearly to that feeding and his sufficiency to the Jewish people. Now, the number seven, on the other hand, is a more universal number. It is the number of completion, initially referring back to the six days of creation and the day of rest to create the thing that we call a seven-day week. Many scholars believe that the number seven came to symbolize the reach of the Holy Spirit to the four corners of the globe while Paul was doing his writing. Namely, that all of creation, not just the Jewish people, were now in view with the seven baskets. Spiritually signifying what Jesus said himself in John ten sixteen, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. Not a Jesus for them and a Jesus for everybody else. One. He came to be savior of the entire world. So Mark, I need to point out also here, used different Greek words. You knew that I was going to get to Greek eventually, right? So Greek, there's different Greek words for basket, further emphasizing this ABA block that I'm I'm pointing out, that the progression was initially to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. The Greek kafinos refers to a small wicker basket that was commonly used in Jewish households at the time. And spirus is a reed basket that resembles a clothes hamper, and it was used in the second feeding, which was commonly the basket found in Gentile homes. So one additional thing to point out here, reading this passage and or hearing it spoken orally in English wouldn't do you a whole lot of good here, right? Right? because what's the word that we have in both passages? Basket, right? But if, was, if it, we were in the first century, Mark, when he was writ, writing this in the native tongue, wrote it in such a way so that the hearers, when they heard this block, would clearly see that there was a different word that was common to a Jewish household used in chapter six, and then sees the progression of all of the healings and all of the things that Jesus did as Jesus was proving the point that he was not just for the Jew, but he was for the entire world because by the time he gets to the feeding of the 4,000, it is what kind of basket? A Gentile basket. Now, if you get this, if you heard this in English, you'd hear basket, basket, so what? But in the original language... That's the way it is. And that's why sometimes it's pretty important to know what's going on under the, in the original before it's translated into a language that you're familiar with. Pointing out, once again, that Mark was writing his gospel for these guys. Remember them? Mark was writing for these guys, not these guys. He was writing, and Mark was all about writing for the Gentile audience. And he was trying to set the pattern clear and making sure that everyone who heard his gospel understood that Jesus was the Savior to the Jew first and then all the peoples of the world. But Mark wasn't through. Look with me at verses 11 through 13 the pharisees the pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him <sighs> that's what jesus did he sighed deeply in his spirit and said why does this generation this is a Roy I'm sitting I'm I'm sticking this in here still seeking a sign Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. (sighs) I mentioned literacy earlier. You know that 1%? Pharisees. They were educated. Paul. Made a, Paul, it, was, it is reported that Paul had, can you imagine this? Because it's the same Old Testament that's in our Bible. Paul memorized the entire Old Testament. Common. Common amongst the Pharisees. They were educated. They had the inside track on what God was doing. And here's, here's the troubling thing for the Pharisees and this exchange that we have in verses 11 through 13. And that is that these zealous people, educated, faith in God, they had studied the Old Testament and concluded that when the Messiah came on the scene, he would vanquish Israel's enemies and he would restore Israel to a glory that they hadn't seen since the days of David and Solomon. And they couldn't ignore Jesus. I mean, he was impossible to ignore, so the Pharisees keep showing up throughout scene after scene after scene, challenging Jesus, arguing with him. And in verse 11, they confronted Jesus, and Jesus' response is classic. He just sighs deeply in his spirit. Now, it's not the sarcastic sigh deeply that I might do when the kids don't do what I want the kids to do, although could be. One of the lasting impressions that Jesus left on Peter, who, by the way, was the apostle who gave Mark most of his information for his gospel was that Jesus sighed a lot. When you're reading through Mark kind of notice the word sigh. It comes up. And let's be honest. The Pharisees gave Jesus plenty to sigh about. To those relying on religious zeal, Jesus off his side before informing them that they were on the outside looking in. They had reduced God to a God that they controlled. They were obsessed with control. And sadly, this continues in religious circles to this day. Religious zeal masquerading as Christianity, people content to leave orderly and often joyless lives devoid of intimacy with God through his son. And that intimacy can only be found in Jesus Christ. So many of them, many people are accidental Pharisees. We we talk about that from time to time. That people are Pharisaical by accident. But trust me, accidental or not, no amount of misplaced zealous, zealousness, no matter how, no matter how much you believe something. It doesn't matter if if Jesus Christ is not central to your zealousness. You can be zealously wrong, as the Pharisees were. Back to the faith walk. Being zealously religious or even walking with Jesus himself doesn't mean that you know who God is or what he wants. Where are you on this map this morning? Are you here with the disciples that where they still are in chapter 8, still not surrendered, still mostly curious, still following, still hanging around Jesus, but not really getting who he was? Or are you a Pharisee? Or are you like hanging around people who are interested in Jesus, but you still don't really aren't prepared to jump. You're curious, you're fascinated possibly, but you're not ready to make the commitment. Or are you on the other side of the chasm that the our offense to God places you in, that Jesus is the only solution to? You're committed to being more like Jesus every day and you're somewhat dissatisfied with where you are in your faith walk. I hope that every one of you who are on that side of the chasm are uncomfortable with your salvation. Sounds kind of like a stupid thing for me to be saying, but bear with me. There is probably nothing worse for you than being comfortable in your Christianity. Every day getting up, doing your thing, and we live in a culture that works endlessly, tirelessly to separate you from the love of God and from re- depending on him. They want you to depend on yourself. They want you to depend on other, anything, anything other than God himself. I read an Einstein quote recently that will help me wrap this up this morning. Unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. Now, you don't need to be literate to place your faith in Jesus. You don't need to be a fool either, as is suggested. Or you don't have to be Einstein, truthfully. I mean, the thing about this quote is, is it's edgy and it gets right to the point that some of us blindly accept authority because, well, they're, they've, they're more educated than I am, they're smarter than I am, they're more powerful than I am. A whole litany of reasons that really don't mean anything in the end if they don't place you in a place where you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. The religious leaders in Jerusalem during Jesus' time lived... The, those particular Pharisees were very zealous for God. They were absolutely convinced that they had the inside track on what God expected. They could read Scripture. They could quote it. They were the authority at the time concerning matters related to the God that we worship. And yet Jesus was standing right there in front of them. All Jesus could do was sigh. They missed it. Unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. Jesus in John 14, 16, I'm sorry, 14.6 14.6 said the following. We're very, many of us are familiar with it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Failure to think for yourself. Blindly accepting whatever those in authority claim can have grave consequences. Now, let me be very clear here. I'm not saying that everybody should rebel against every authority. What I am suggesting is you just don't accept what they have to say because they are an authority. When being examined by Pilate, the governmental authority of the area where Jesus was, Jesus told him that he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And with Jesus standing in front of him, Jesus standing in front of him, the governing authority, Pilate, sarcastically, dismissively responded with something that you would expect to hear in a college today. What is truth? For those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our truth is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. And that is something that at times can have severe consequences depending on where you're living, what authority you're under, but it doesn't change the fact that the disciples didn't understand why Jesus did what he did yet, and the Pharisees had educated themselves into believing that they were the ones who knew what God was up to, so much so that after all that Jesus had done between the first feeding and the second feeding, all of those examples, Jesus time after time after time giving them signs that he was there for them, And he was going to be the savior for the entire world that by the time he got to verse 12, he was sighing. No sign is going to be given to this generation, what, beyond the ones that he had already given. All of this sounds an awful lot like today to me. The literate, especially the academic elites and the governing authorities are dismissive of any Faith based on a belief in Jesus. Now, I phrase that very carefully because, believe me, if you're an atheist, you have faith. It just isn't in Jesus. It's in anything but God. Atheist, not God. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone is placing a bet in this life. And you are going to make a determination. Are you blindly accepting those in authority Or are you seeking truth? And that's our takeaway this morning. Academic, political, religious, don't get so caught up in what those in authority claim or being religious like the Pharisees, merely just hanging around believers that you miss the joy, the true joy of knowing following Jesus every day of your life.